Welcome this morning to Lakeside. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, If you were able to celebrate with us last week on Resurrection Sunday, uh, you heard then and you might already know that that is the biggest celebration. It is the central truth of our faith. It is the reason that we get together every single Sunday because Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday. And in that, he changes everything about the way we view the world, about the way we view worship, and hopefully the way then that we live our own lives. And so an appropriate question a week later is then, well, what's next? You know, if, if that's the, the pinnacle moment, if that's the highlight of what we believe and, and what shapes us, well, then what's next? What happened after that event in Jesus's life. And what you might be less familiar with is that Jesus, for actually a period of 40 days after he rose from the grave, was with his disciples and he was teaching them. He was preparing them for what would happen next. And that we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday, which for us is going to be the very last Sunday in May. The, the time when he would send the promised helper to his people and he'd give them the power that they would need to live out their life in him. But before he sent the spirit after his resurrection, he gathered them together and for several days and weeks taught them. And so actually I'll invite you first to go to the gospel of Luke and we'll kind of see what Jesus did on page 885. You'll find it if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. This is the end of Luke's gospel. It's after Jesus has risen from the dead. And we're just going to look at one verse here, verse 27 of chapter 24 on page 885. But I'll give you the background. Jesus is walking with a few people who are aware of what's happened in Jesus' death and crucifixion. They were in Jerusalem. They heard what was going on. And Jesus is now appearing to them to show them who he is, that he is alive and that he is risen from the dead. And then this is what it says Jesus did with them in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, as he was talking to these two people, wondering what was going on and what it means, had this opportunity to have Jesus himself going back to Moses and the law and then the prophets, and Jesus showed them how the very stories they knew, the the heroes of their faith that they celebrated, were in all some way pointing forward to him and to what he would do, that he was the fulfiller of the law and the great prophet. And so that's actually what we're going to do. We're now, uh, with Jesus as our guide, going to be going back into the Old Testament, looking specifically at the life of a prophet named Elisha to see what kind of things that we should know and we should understand about what it means to live for God. Uh, But the big idea behind this series is, as we've just celebrated, that we were in such need that Jesus had to come and live to die and to rise again for us to be saved. We needed him to do all of that for us to be saved. Well, we also need him now being saved to live for him. If we needed his help that much just to enter into the kingdom, just to be born again and experience new life, it's not a huge leap to then think we also need his help to live this life. 
we also need his help to know what to do. How, how do we figure this out? How does the resurrection affect our life, our worship? And so we see that a life lived for God must also be lived by the power of God. If we're going to live for him and we're going to do things that are pleasing to him and that bring us the greatest joy, we, we not only have to do it for him, but we have to do it by the strength that he gives us. And so grace is not just something that we receive, it's actually something that we live by. We live by God's grace, his continual giving of himself to us. And so that's why we talk about Christianity as a relationship. We don't just receive something from Jesus and then we walk away with it. What we receive is a companion, a friend, and we become disciples, followers of him, and now we live this life with him. And so he is constantly with us through his spirit. And so with that as our cue, we're actually, I'm going to invite you now to turn back to the book of 1 Kings. It's towards the beginning of your Old Testament, and we're going to look into the life of a prophet named Elisha. And so 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we'll turn. It's on page 301. We're going to start in verse 9, and then we'll read through the end of the chapter. And so we have the resurrected Jesus showing from beginning with Moses and all of the prophets how these very scriptures pointed to himself, and that we can learn things about what it means to live for God and to live by the Spirit by looking at these passages. And so we're going to start in verse 9. Now, I just said we're going to do a series on the prophet Elisha. And where we're going to start reading is about a man named Elijah. He is the prophet right before Elijah. And there's a a transition period that takes place. And it's one of the things that hopefully we're aware of, that there's always a story behind the story. There's always somebody who came before us. Because if somebody didn't come before us, there wouldn't be us. I actually sat through a presentation this week of five people from India who were visiting the United States and being given a tour of various places in Northeast Ohio. And I found it fascinating. Every one of them who then gave a presentation in their own biography, uh, all of them were over the age of 40. But when they presented who they were and who their families were, every one of them started with their parents. They first showed a picture of their parents and said, these are the people that I come from. And there was also an interesting translation issue. The title didn't say our parents, it said our creators. And so I don't know what software they were using to help them translate it, but that they all had this sense culturally that our story doesn't begin with us. If if there wasn't somebody before us, there is no us. And so to tell you who I am and, and why my life is the way it is, there's something before that you have to know. And the same is true with Elisha. We have to go a little bit backwards and pick up on this person named Elijah, who's one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He's actually someone who people regularly mistook Jesus for. When Jesus said, who do people say that I am? They'd say, well, you're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, or you're, and they'd name a couple of people. But this prophet, Elijah, had one of the best reputations in all of the Old Testament for what he was able to do for God living in his spirit. But where our story picks up is that Elijah, this great prophet, is actually in one of the darkest periods of his spiritual life. 
His living for God is in a low place where we're going to start reading. He's discouraged because after years and years of faithful ministry, the queen at the time has just said that she wants him dead. And he just is fed up. He's done with it. He's been doing so much, living and trying to honor and please God, and yet for some reason, somebody still hates him and wants nothing to do with him. And so this is where our story picks up. He's off on his own in the wilderness, wondering if there is any future left. So verse 9, there he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life. To take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. 
And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And that concludes our reading. Entitled this specific message, Seeing God at Work. As we've said, Elijah was in a dark place in his life, finding it hard to see God at work. But it's hard when we read a longer portion of Scripture for maybe us to pick up on the details. So I just want to run through them briefly. But again, first, we have this prophet named Elijah. He's been serving faithfully, and he gives us a picture of what he's been doing. He's been faithful to God. He's been preaching his message, but it's not catching on. As a nation, not only the king and the queen, but even the people, it seems that they are, they're no longer caring about God. They don't really, they're not interested in doing what he wants, and they're starting to worship other gods. And this is the entire reason that we have prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets came about because the majority of the people were wandering away from God. And they were wandering away from God in part because the leadership of the day was leading them in that direction. And so God raised up specific people to speak messages to them, to call them back from their wandering and say, don't run away from God, don't leave him behind, don't start worshiping something else. God is who he said he is. He will keep the promises that he has made to us. And that's what Elijah's life was all about, calling people to worship God and not anything else. But though he'd done this for years and for years, he saw little fruit in terms of changing the hearts and the minds of all of the people. He saw dramatic things. He saw miracles. He saw God show up in mighty ways. But he saw hearts that were cold remain cold. Hearts that didn't want to live for God still stubborn and rebelling. And so he's discouraged. And so God is going to try to wake him up so that he can see God at work. And so we have this description that he's away in the wilderness in a cave and some dramatic things start to happen. There's an earthquake, there's a storm, there's a fire. But in all of these things, our writer tells us God was not in those. But all of a sudden, after all this great noise, there was this very, very low sound. And in our translation, it said in verse 12, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And then it's footnoted. And if you look down at the footnote, it says, or a sound, a thin silence. Part of what the translators are telling you is, we don't actually know what Elijah heard. It's appropriate to say that he heard silence, which you don't hear silence, right? So that's where you get the phrase, the sound of silence, that in all of this dramatic noise, all of a sudden this hushed silence. And the kind of silence, almost like a breath that if if you were sitting next to somebody really close and you started to notice that they were dozing off, you just... You hear them breathing. That sort of intimate, you hear something, and some of you are laughing. Is somebody next to you doing that? Do we need to to get the the praise team back up here and get the drums going a little bit? That, That closeness to somebody that you hear just even, they're breathing. And Elijah needs to experience the closeness of God. 
that, that, that he can almost sense that, that, that you're, you're here in such a way that I can almost sense your breathing. This, this sound of silence that he gets that is meant to awaken him. And it says, in there, then the Lord addresses him again and says, what are you doing? And he says again, I'm here because nobody else is following you and they're trying to kill me. And basically, he doesn't see a future. And so what then God speaks to him is he shares with him the future that does exist. There is hope. There is a future. And he names two kings that he's going to have raised up in the future. And then he names a prophet that he's going to have raised up into the future. The prophet's name is Elisha. And that's what Elijah needs to hear, that there are other people who God is working through. There is a plan and a future that is beyond me. And so then he actually departs and he goes and he finds Elisha and he calls him into this service. He puts his robe over him, which is a way of kind of identifying him and saying, I do want you to be the successor. You are chosen to to follow after me. And what Elisha does is says, well, give me a moment. Let Let me leave what I'm about to leave on a good note. Let me respect my mother and my father. Let me treat them well. I've got a backstory too, and so help me, let me leave and end this current job I'm in well. And Elijah says, whatever you want to do, basically. It's, it's even hard to kind of interpret his tone in, in his response. And so what Elisha does is he makes a sacrifice. He takes that which he's working with and he sacrifices a meal and he basically throws a party for his whole family and says, I am leaving, I am on my way out, but I want to make sure that as I go to this new thing, I show respect for what's been going on and for the people that have been loving me and shaping me. And so he provides this sacrifice for everybody. So those are the details of the story. Now we can take a number of things from it that we can learn. And one of the first ones that I want to highlight for you is beginning with Elijah and the place that he's in. As we said, he was in a dark place, but for good reason. It is possible in your life and mine for us to get into a place of discouragement or despair or depression for actually really good reasons. Not because we're doing something wrong. And with him, there's probably actually a couple of things going on. At the first stance, he's probably just physically exhausted. He's been fasting for a long period of time. Even in his dramatic actions for God, all of those have a way of wearing you out and you're tired and you feel like you need a nap or you need a rest. And he's coming at a place where he's physically exhausted. He's also emotionally wounded. Because the people that he's trying to reach out to are rejecting him. So he's doing a good thing. He's trying to make connections with other people, but they're rejecting that. And we always feel that emotionally when we feel rejected. And then he's spiritually discouraged. And one of the best takeaways that we can have is that if we ever find ourselves in any one or a combination of those, that one of the best things we can do for ourselves is to doubt ourselves. If you find yourself just physically exhausted or emotionally wounded by somebody else or spiritually discouraged because you think you've been trying hard and you've been working, 
whenever you feel that, you start to, your mind comes to conclusions and you'll say things like, well, this is never going to change. I'm never going to be able to do this. There's no hope that this is going to get any better. Everything is ruined. I can never be happy with him. She will never listen to what I'm trying to say. We come to all kinds of conclusions and ideas in our mind when we're in that state of our own lives. And one of the best things that we can do is take all of those conclusions and doubt them. Don't believe them. When you're tempted in your heart to say, this can never change, examine and acknowledge, are you just, you are just emotionally spent. You're physically exhausted. You might think differently if you literally just went to bed and re-examine the subject in the morning. But you're in a place where you're down, you're discouraged. And you're coming to all kinds of conclusions that don't reflect faith in God, that don't reflect hope in the future, because you are in a dark place. And so one of the best things that we can do in that moment is to doubt our ideas, to doubt our conclusions and our convictions Because they don't stem from what we believe about God. They stem from what we're just feeling in the moment of our own pain and of our own hurt. And that's where Elijah is. He's coming to a lot of conclusions, but he needs to start to doubt them. And in doubting them, he needs to then trust in God. And he he needed this message to hear from God through his voice that there is a future, that there is a hope, that... What he's feeling is not what God is feeling. What he is seeing is not what God is seeing. What he believes to be true is not what God knows to be true. God sees past his pain. God sees past his limited perspective. And he knows that right there in the moment are thousands of other people that are like him. Not everybody is involved in idol worship. Not everybody is wandering away from God. He can't see that because he's in a cave away from everybody. But he needs to learn that the world is not only what he can see. The world is not only what he can feel. What defines the world is what God sees, what God knows, and what God says is true. And so he first has to learn to doubt his own conclusions, to trust in God, to then remember or to look back and see and if you want to for homework just go back and read the couple of chapters that precede this and all the ways that God showed up in his life that that we would come to and say how did you begin to doubt God has done so many things for you and that's part of what God then needs to do for him he needs to remind him that he has always been there and that he will be there in the future and that even when Elijah is dead and gone, the Spirit of God will continue to work through the people of God. God's not done with what he's doing. And then in looking back, what he needs to do is move forward. God gives him an assignment. He says, don't stay in this cave. Not a lot good is going to happen while you're just alone in your own thoughts, in your own discouragement. You need to get out. You need to move on. And here's an assignment for you. 
And so he, he gets his assignment to go and to anoint the people that will serve in his place when he is gone. <clears throat> but it's actually interesting. Elisha needs to take a lot of these same steps. When Elijah comes to him, we learn a few things about him. It describes him that he's working on a field and he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and, and he's with the 12th and he's on his father's property. And so what all the commentators tell us is therefore he's actually from a pretty wealthy family. For a family to themselves have 12 oxen, and the amount of property that you would then have for, to take care of all that is that he's actually in a pretty good situation. And from everything we can see, he's a pretty good son. Things are going well. If you were to interview him, he, he's in a very different place in his life than Elijah is. Elijah's discouraged. He's depressed. Things aren't fun. And if you were to come up and interview Elisha, he would say, I mean, I, I don't know how much I love farming right now, but things are pretty good. I know my mother and father. I have a great relationship with them. The family business seems to be going well. And out of the blue, in all of what seems to be going well in his life, somebody comes and says, God actually has a very different plan for you. What do you mean? God's calling you into a new life, no longer as a, a farmer or a part of the family business, but he wants you to be a prophet and to succeed Elijah. Elijah? The guy who's got a warrant out for him? Who's got a bounty on his head? I'm, you want me to leave this? To follow that? And what Elisha needs to doubt in himself is he needs to see past all of his comforts. And so that's the second point in your handout. Elijah needs to see past his despair Elisha needs to see past his comforts. You see, it would have been very easy for him to say, everything is going so well, this must be how it's always supposed to go. Because clearly, if it's all going well and all the relationships are great, then this must be the will of God for me. This is how I'm supposed to live for him. This is how I'm supposed to honor him. But then this prophet comes on one day and says, well, no, it, not, none of it's bad. But don't assume that just because it's going good, it's what God has for you. Don't assume that just because you're comfortable, you're exactly where God wants you to be. Don't assume that just because you're enjoying a relative freedom and success in your business, that you are in the center of God's will and God's plan for your life. And so any of those thoughts that are beginning to form in his mind about how great everything is and how he's hoping that this just continues... He needs to doubt and not believe those conclusions, to not close off his own life to the possibilities that God might have for him beyond that. And then you say to yourself, well, if you're supposed to doubt yourself when you're in despair and you're supposed to doubt yourself when you're comfortable, when are you supposed to trust yourself? The biblical answer is really never. <laughs> um, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and we're not supposed to lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him. And we just have a way of misinterpreting the bad times and misinterpreting the good times. We just do that. It's this gift that's not a gift because it messes everything up. But it's amazing the capacity with which we have to do that. And so Elisha is in a very different place. He needs to trust 
God's plan that though he is calling him out of comfort, calling him out of his great relationships, that God is doing something and that he is supposed to follow that. He, he makes a request. He says, well, do I have to leave right now or can I, can I at least have a moment to kind of honor what's been going on, all the, all the ways in which I've been blessed with my family? And Elijah says to him, um, go back again for what have I done to you? He's very non-threatening. And like I said, it's kind of hard to interpret this, his tone of voice in here. And so I don't want to add anything to, to get you to think about it in a certain way. But one of the basic things we can draw, whether his tone is, is good or bad, is that this call has to be something that Elijah does voluntarily. If he's going to follow God and he's going to choose this way of life, he has to choose it. He has to accept it and say, yeah, all of this is good, but I believe that all of this is, is from God. I mean, all these blessings are from him, and so if he's calling me to something else, my allegiance is to him. It's not to the stuff he gives me. And so I trust him, and I believe that if he's calling me to this, then it's what I'm supposed to do. But if he's going to endure in his ministry and in his life, he can't look back and say, well, he made me do it. He has to say, I was called by God, and I accepted that call. And so whatever happens, i got to deal with it with God, not complain about Elijah. And so Elijah's very non-threatening, just I'm telling you that this is what the Lord has said to me, but you have to choose it on your own. And so then in doubting himself and trusting in God, he then, he does go back and he sacrifices a meal and he celebrates with all of the family and all of the workers the blessings that they have enjoyed. And then he too has to move on. God entering into his life, calling him into something means he's got to go. And that's just one of the metaphors that's all throughout the Bible is that God is on the move. And so if we are living with him and listening to him, then we are moving with him. That he's not standing still. And so that if we feel ourselves standing still and stuck in a rut, we're not listening. We're not following the path that he has set for us. But he has a vision of moving us forward. He has a life for us that he desires. His goal isn't just to save us and to clean us off, but he's got bigger plans, bigger purposes. And, and now notice what Elijah's doing. He's not seeking this out. He's just being a good son. He's just being a good worker on a farm. He's not walking around saying, I really, really hope God does something better for me. I really hope he does something bigger for me. What he is doing is the best job he can with where he's at in his life. And he leaves everything else to God. And that's our challenge for us. Uh, Even before we consider what we might be called to is are we just with what we have and with where we are pursuing our life with excellence? Doing it as, as the New Testament says, whatever you do, whether you're eating or you're drinking, whether you're working, whatever you're doing, Are you doing it for God's glory? Are you doing it with thankfulness to him for the blessings that he's given you? And if you do what you're doing for his glory, even in the small things, don't be surprised if he comes along one day and then calls you into something new, into something deeper, something that you would not choose for yourself. 
but that he has chosen for you because he loves you. It might mean more pain. It might mean more difficulty. But with the more pain and the more difficulty, more grace, more help, and a a greater closeness and experience of a relationship with him. But this is the big question that all of us face when we want to consider how we're supposed to live for God is are we open to God working in us according to his will? Or do we have our own sets of ideas of what we want God to do and then we just kind of want to talk him in to living out the life that we already have planned for ourselves? Or do we acknowledge that he's bigger, he's smarter, he's greater, he's the one who just died and rose again and so He's the one who has the authority and the wisdom and the compassion to set us out on a course that is far greater and bigger than anything that we could have imagined. I'll invite you in closing to turn to 2 Corinthians to show you a verse that describes this in the New Testament. But whether you find yourself in the experiences of Elijah or Elisha, we all need to see God and need to see him at work. And in 2 Corinthians, we get this amazing description of what God is doing in the gospel for each and every one of us. 2 Corinthians is a letter of Paul in the New Testament. You'll find it on page 965. We're going to read verses 5 and 6 and just wrap this up. Because as we started, what we always want to keep in mind is the resurrected Jesus in all of his power preparing us for what it means to live for him. And here's what we read in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A phrase I'd like you to zoom in on is at the beginning of verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness. You see, it's the plan of God not just to shine light into darkness, And so not just to come into our world and to do all that he did, but part of that plan and of his coming into this world, his living and his dying and his rising again, is so that now light would shine out of darkness. That it would shine from you and that it would shine from you and from me. That The purpose, part of the purpose in saving us is not just to save us. It's to change us in such a way that we actually now live with him in such a way that his light shines through us to other people. And that's what's next. And that's what he's preparing all of his disciples for, that he is about to leave and he's going to send his spirit, but not so that anything less would happen but that the light that he brought into the world would not only come into us, but then through us to other people. And that he's calling not just 
one person like in Elijah or one person like in Elisha. But now, as we understand in the New Testament, that he's going to make his spirit fall on the young and the old, men and women, and that anybody who follows him and serves him will be part of his plan and part of his purpose to spread that light, to go and to do the works that we can do because of who he is, because that's his purpose. So we don't proclaim ourselves We we doubt ourselves. It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. But what Jesus Christ is now up to in this world is to work through you and through me. What Jesus Christ is doing now as the ruling and the reigning king is convicting you, convicting me of somebody to talk to of something to do, of a group to join and to participate in, but that we are, in a very real sense, his hands and his feet. That therefore the world doesn't think of him as absent and no longer here, but that he is here through you and through me, letting the light that we've experienced shine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do long to see you at work. And we acknowledge that we can get into a place of discouragement or despair, or we can even get into a place of comfort and familiarity where we no longer see you in all of your grandeur and all of your glory and all of your beauty and all of your power. And so, Father, we pray that you would Help us to turn our eyes to you as we're about to sing. Help us to live in the power of the resurrection that because you are not dead and because you are alive, you are living in and through and among us. Father, we pray that the light that you brought into the world through your Son would now shine through us, out of us, For your name's sake, amen.